Hello and a very warm welcome to the gardening podcast that's for everyone who wants to enjoy growing their own flowers, fruit and vegetables. I'm Dan. And I'm Julia. And together we're Two Good Gardeners. We're an all-inclusive podcast, so whether your garden is big or small, north or south, sunny or shady, we are here to share our gardening know-how and great ideas that you can try at home. We upload a new episode every fortnight, packed with news, timely tips and the occasional interview with gardeners we admire. We know you're busy people, so we like to keep things short and sweet. Think of this podcast as a bento box of delicious goodies to be consumed with gusto. And now we've whetted your appetite, let's crack on with episode 5, sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Well, welcome back to Two Good Gardeners. What an eventful, topsy-turvy fortnight it's been. (laughs) I've not known what day of the week it's been half the time. And what with all the bank holidays and different events I've been at, I'm ready for a rest. My partner and I have both had chest infections, so we've been croaking and coughing our way along, and I really hope I'm not going to cough today. We've not managed to do quite as much in the garden as we like, but we're keeping on top of things just about. There seem to be a lot of bugs about, so I'm really hoping you've been well over there in East Sussex. Well, Dan, I have been well and I feel sorry for you um, because I know you've been under the weather and struggling with plant fairs, standing outside with the cold because it's not been warm, going probably through your boots and (laughs) up to goodness knows where. (laughs) But uh, talking of bugs, uh, we have been hit with bugs, but not uh, virus bugs. (laughs) You came to visit last week, which was fantastic, but you cleverly spotted the dreaded box moth caterpillar in one of my box plants. And um, I was horrified, but I did take your advice and I actioned immediately, wrapped the box ball up and ordered the recommended product, Zentari, and it's been sprayed and uh, it looks as if they've all curled up and died, but goodness knows if they've gone elsewhere and whether I've missed anything. So although I've stopped them for now, I shall be extra vigilant and be giving that plant another spray soon. Then having been through that, another bug appeared at the weekend, which was inside the house this time. Um, And it was an invasion of clothes moths, which has been another disaster. So treatment is in progress. A few items in the freezer. Apparently that's what you do. Lots are in the wash. Some are at the dry cleaners and the rest are all outside. (laughs) I think two bugs is enough. And before all that, I attended an emergency first aid course for office workers, which was organised by a local business called How To Basically. And that was a brilliant day's course. So if you start to feel peculiar, Dan... I'm your woman. Well, I should be careful what you offer out there because it could become a full-time <laughs> job with me. But I'm really glad I managed to spot your box moth caterpillars as I'm afraid I have been there, done that and got the t-shirt. They um, completely decimated our box balls which were planted in pots outside the back door and in our local park there is nothing left of any of the box hedges and they only really got going um, in April so they have really really devastated those hedges very very quickly. So Mm -hmm. I'm not too sad because box balls weren't really ripe for my garden but we had them and so we kept them but they've been chucked out unceremoniously um, and replaced with some formiums which are 
spiky plants and a bit more tropical and exotic looking, which is much better really for us. But um, I think we'd all really like to know how you get along with your remedy. And we're all keeping our fingers crossed that it works because you have some really beautiful box shapes in your garden. Yeah, I do. And thank you, Dan. And I will. I'll keep everyone updated um, on this podcast about how I get on and if I find any other products. But I, I had been recommended the Zentari, which apparently is the only thing that actually does work. So I will keep you posted. <laughs> Before we move on, it might actually be helpful for you to just describe what it is that people should look for if they think they've got a problem with their box. Okay, that's a good idea. So, well, I had walked past it and not spotted anything, but you spotted that all the leaves had almost turned grey, like a silvery grey, and had curled up and bunched together. And it didn't look as if the plant was sort of back to bare bones yet, but it was definitely going that way with lots of little webbing bits in between where the caterpillars were hiding. And then on closer inspection, you could actually see literally hundreds of caterpillars. Yes. And they're quite a bright, ferocious green and black combination, aren't they? They are. Considering I didn't spot them, they're actually quite vibrant. And I'm sure I could see them. They're the eyes even looking at me, little devils. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they've met their match now, that's for sure. (laughs) I hope so. Dan and I have a hot topic that we discuss at every episode and we thought that it was right that we should discuss the RHS Chelsea Flower Show this time because it's just around the corner. It starts on the 23rd of May and we feel that the ticket price is a little bit punchy if you want to go for all day. It's nearly £96 and so we thought that it would be a good question to discuss as to whether or not the ticket is worth visiting the show. I, for one, absolutely love Chelsea Flower Show and I wouldn't miss it for the world and in fact I have been visiting it since I was 22 missing one or two years for different reasons so I'll leave you to ponder how many years that has actually been it is considered the most prestigious flower show in the world and it does attract a very loyal following from all around the world but is the ticket value for money the show gardens created are not just beautiful but they are inspirational innovative and thought-provoking. They showcase the latest trends in garden design and horticulture, and this year is no exception. From what I've read, I get the feeling the emphasis is on sustainability. However, the show gardens are a small part of the show and are often overcrowded, making it hard to see and fully appreciate them. I am lucky because I am an RHS member, And so I have access to two special days for members only, which is the Tuesday and Wednesday, so first and second day. But however, if I were to arrive after 10am in the morning at my peril, because it is a little bit like the Harrods sale. (laughs) (laughs) It is exactly like that. And like you, Julia, I've been going to Chelsea since I was in my 20s and I've always had a bit of a love-hate relationship with it and it's not over yet. And I completely agree with you. It is undoubtedly the pinnacle of horticulture in this country. The standards are almost unbelievably high. And I think to a bystander, you look at some of the exhibits and you just marvel at the perfection of the plants that are on display and the beauty 
of some of the gardens, which are all designed to the highest standards with big budgets behind them. And a lot of expertise and knowledge is poured into those creations. So there's yeah. no doubt that there's it's a very prestigious show and it commands a premium price for a ticket. Trends are set at Chelsea and whatever plants are used in the gardens tend to crop up over and over again in garden centres and garden magazines for the rest of the year. And many a garden designer has made their reputation there. A few have not been seen again (laughs) after a bronze medal or heaven forbid a no medal. But there's no doubt the nation's gardeners are driven into a frenzy by the build-up to the show and all of the TV coverage that goes on. However, I have frequently had issues with Chelsea as a visitor. And of course, we talk about the ticket cost, which for a full-day ticket is nearly £96. I see on the website today that those few full-day tickets that are still available are now £120, so <gasps> even more. And we we can't overlook the fact that that's just the price of getting in because, you know, it's quite an expensive show to be at. You You can't go out and come back in, which is something I know frustrates you and of course we all have to we all have to pay to get there so it is crowded and you can't really blame people for wanting to get close to the show gardens where there's always a bit of a scrum but I think it's made a lot more uncomfortable by the fact that there are so many tv cameras and crews marshalling people around Mm. when the show is open and I I feel sometimes that that really detracts from my experience as a visitor I don't know what the solution is but I really wish that they would try to get all the filming out of the way either early in the morning before the show opens or perhaps just before the show opens to the public put aside a special day at the beginning like they do for the press to do all the filming. Yes. I'm sure that having people there probably gives the films more atmosphere but it does mean that there are often things that you can't get close to when you would like to. My biggest bugbear, which I'm sure the sponsors of the show and the various gardens would not agree with, is that I don't like to see the troops of people marching round the show gardens when I'm trying to appreciate them and take pictures of them. And it does create a kind of them and us atmosphere, I think, where there are these people who are permitted to go and walk around the gardens, which is a a fantastic experience. I have done it myself. It's a very different thing to be on a show garden rather than looking at it from the outside. But also it does take away a little bit, I feel, from your appreciation as someone who's standing back and looking at it. And of course, the dreaded red cagoule often manifests itself. It's my least favourite bit of (laughs) attire because you can guarantee whenever you want to photograph something in any garden in Britain, there will be somebody wearing a red cagoule exactly where you don't want them to be. I would like the gardens to remain free of visitors, at least during the sort of key hours of the show and perhaps restrict access to them just to early in the morning and later on in the evening. But a difficult one, I'm sure there are many good reasons why people are allowed. 
And then, of course, there is the all the other expenses. And I think for anyone who's visited the Chelsea Flower Show before, they will have experienced quite expensive catering and not always delivered with the best customer service, particularly early in the week when lots of people are new to the game. And it becomes quite difficult to find anywhere to sit and enjoy your cup of tea or your picnic. So one good thing I should say is that you are allowed to take a picnic and many people do and so that's quite a good idea so take some snacks or a drink or something like that with you and avoid some of the most expensive bits of visiting the Chelsea Flower Show. It is however from experience very hard if you're there for a number of hours not to end up spending money on something because otherwise it spoils your whole day you don't want to be feeling dehydrated and miserable there so I think when you've paid that much for a ticket you should rightfully expect a comfortable experience and I think with that in mind the two of us have put our heads together and come up with a list of 10 helpful tips which we hope is going to make your day at Chelsea worth every penny yes that's right we have so First tip is plan your visit. Use the RHS website and all the TV coverage the week before to plan what you want to see before you set off. The BBC run a series of programmes daily on the run up to Chelsea and you can really get a good grasp of the show gardens from watching that, understanding them and you can work out what you want to see first, etc. Great tip. One of mine is to wear practical clothes because the weather can vary between really quite cold, so down to six or seven degrees, and roasting hot, depending on what the heavens decide to do. And it really isn't uncommon to experience four seasons in a day at Chelsea. (laughs) So whilst a lot of people do dress up, and I really like that about Chelsea because I feel that people do make an effort to look nice and get their finery out, you do have to be a little bit practical particularly in the footwear department particularly if it's wet because lots of mulch gets put down and that has a horrible habit of soaking into pale coloured shoes and take a waterproof coat if rain is forecast and a hat if it's going to be sunny yes good point but note to self waterproof coat is not going to be red from now on (laughs) (laughs) definitely not Okay, so tip three is arrive early, which is what I do. So the gates open at eight. So if you get there before, that's very wise and make a beeline for the thing that you really want to see first and any other exhibits. And if you want to do a little bit of shopping, it's also a really good time to hit those stalls because hardly anyone else is there. That's a great tip too. I've always made sure to be there before eight and now I think a lot of other people do too but it does mean that in those first few moments you can get to what you want to see and have a little bit of space to yourself. As I said before, take a bottle of water with you and some snacks. It's fine to take a picnic. Take a picnic blanket as well as that's going to really extend your options in terms of places to sit because there aren't that many benches and seats around. And there are points around the show where you can refill a water bottle too. That's a great tip, Dan. But just to say that you can actually leave your bags in a cloakroom, can't you? Because nobody's going to want to carry their picnic around all day long. That's right, you can. 
Okay, good. Right, tip five. If you want to buy lunch and haven't booked one of the restaurants, and those also have quite a high price tag, aim to eat early to improve your chances of getting seated and not be in such a long queue. Both Dan and I aim for the Woodland Glade area within Randy Gardens, which is slightly more secluded and informal. You can usually get a piece of grass or somewhere to sit. And if it's really hot, it's actually quite shady, which is quite welcome. And if you're really lucky, you'll make some very good friends. I've met a lot of people sitting in that area on the mission to, you know, predict who is going to get up and leave their seat next but you it's a good uh, it's a good forum for having a chat with somebody as Julia said there is a very efficient cloakroom there for larger bags and coats and again it is so much nicer not to be encumbered by those sort of things when you're walking around a show it just makes the whole day more pleasurable if you can leave them somewhere yeah if you're anxious to see a show garden be patient and wait your turn to get to the front. People do turn around quite quickly. They see what they want to see and then they move on. So just stick with it and don't give up. And if you're going to take a lot of photographs, consider taking a battery pack with you because you're definitely going to need to recharge your phone at some point during the day. Yes, that's right. And there is nowhere to recharge your phone if it runs out of battery. So Mm. yes, have that a bit of extra juice up your sleeve if you can. Now, a really good tip is to take advantage of special offers at Chelsea if there's something you really want or need, because a lot of the trade stands there and the nurseries will offer special deals on purchases made at the show. And that can include anything from bulbs to sheds to garden magazine subscriptions. So if there is something that you know you want or need, make sure you take advantage of those offers. It's also worth noting that at Chelsea, very few plants are sold because space is incredibly limited. You'll find some very small plug plants, you'll find some bulbs, but the exhibitors are not given much space to sell from. So don't take your Hampton Court trolley unless it's a Saturday (laughs) when some of the plants are being sold off. Great tip. And watch out for the infamous Chelsea cough, which is caused by irritant fibres that drift down from the plane trees that tower over the show gardens. They do cause a physical irritation, not an allergic reaction, but hay fever tablets won't protect you. Only a face covering will, but I should think if it's hot, that would be quite uncomfortable, wouldn't it? It will be, but I can't tell you the number of times. Those bits of fluff are a complete nuisance and you often see them, if any garden has got a water feature, you'll see this sort of, you'll see them trying to scoop the fluff off the top of the water as they go. But yes, it is something to watch out for, but it, it won't kill you, so you're okay. And of course, our last tip is that if you can't visit in person, the TV coverage offers a brilliant alternative. You will get vantage points there that you will never get as a visitor on the ground and insights from all sorts of experts. And of course, the TV coverage is free and apart from the license fee and available on demand. Yeah, no, that really is very good. I mean, I always watch so I can see much more of the show garden from the television than I can in person at Chelsea because you can only really see from the side or the front. And finally, although most tickets for this year's show have sold out, apart from the ones Dan's mentioned earlier, it's worth remembering that you can go in afternoon slash evening and the 
time where you can go in is 3.30. So you've got 3.30 until 8. And those tickets are around half the price. I have actually visited on those tickets before and I've not felt that I've missed out on anything, actually. So that's another good tip. Yes, me too. I mean, when I was a student, that was the only, they were the only tickets I could afford. In fact, I think there was a 5.30 to 8 ticket at one stage which was considerably cheaper because the crowds do tend to disappear later in the day and they're replaced by all the lucky people who are there with sponsors often invited for drinks and things in the evening but it is a very different vibe later in the day and actually very pleasant if you just want to spend a few hours there and get the general gist of it. So yes, I have to say that despite all my reservations, I am drawn back year after year, although perhaps I really don't take it quite as seriously as I once did. I let a lot of the fuss and bother pass me by nowadays, and if I can't see something, I don't stress about it too much. I occasionally go on more than one day if I can, just so that I can have a bit of space and time to appreciate it, but I know that is not really an option for a lot of people. And of course, with an event of those proportions, you're never going to please everyone. And I always say to people who don't particularly like crowds and just want more of a social occasion with more room to eat and enjoy other people's company, then I think Hampton Court in early July is the show to go to because it is more of a festival. I think they call it a garden festival now, indeed. And that is really what it is. It is. It takes itself a little bit less seriously. Horticulture is still great. And, of course, the weather is generally excellent, which probably means I've cursed it for this year. <laughs> well, we'll find out. So, in conclusion, a visit to the Chelsea Flower Show is the best day out if you are a gardener or keen horticulturalist, or just someone looking for inspiration. There is nothing quite like it. And actually, let's face it, it's cheaper than a concert ticket at less than £10 an hour if you're going to be there all day. That's 8 o'clock in the morning until 8 o'clock at night. Plan your visit, embrace the crowds as they are part of the experience. But if you're not a crowd lover, there are lots of other things to see and events in Chelsea that go on simultaneously that week. All the shops go to town on their floral decorations. That's worth the tube journey to Sloane Square for this alone. All the roads in the area make a huge effort, especially Pavilion Road, which is behind Peter Jones. And Chelsea Barracks, opposite the side exit from the fair, has a spring fair with events, seminars, an artisan market and flower installations. And actually, it's just a lovely place to wander through on your way back to the Tube and it costs nothing and it is very inspirational. Yes, I think it is exceptional. And I have a friend who comes from Australia, especially to go to the Chelsea Flower Show, and she does the whole lot. So she will go around all the different shops and marvel at their incredible floral displays which extend quite a long way out from Chelsea, actually. And it's just, well, obviously worth a visit from Australia. So I hope she's not disappointed this year. Great. So we're going to put all our Chelsea tips in the show notes and hope you have a brilliant day if you have splashed out on a ticket. Both of us are going to be there on the Tuesday, the first day, and you might even catch me on Wednesday too. Julia's going to be there with Alatex on and off throughout the week. So go and find her there and marvel at her lovely styling and the way she has embraced sustainability within the Alatex greenhouses. 
Of course, we want you to say hello to us if you spot us in the crowd, so don't hold back. Do say hello to us. We love a chin wag, don't we, Dan? We do. (laughs) Now, we usually share a project and a product of the fortnight, but in this episode, we're going to continue the Chelsea theme and talk about a practice known as the Chelsea Chop. You may very well have heard keen gardeners talking about it and wondered what it is and why you would want to do it. So we're about to explain all. Dan, what is the Chelsea Chop in a nutshell, please? Quite simply, the Chelsea Chop is the practice of reducing the height of your perennials by about 30 to 50% using shears or secateurs. Now, that sounds a little bit brutal and a tiny bit pointless, but I'm going to explain why in just a moment. You do it during the third week of May, which is late spring here in the UK. And of course, It's called the Chelsea Chop because that is when the Royal Horticultural Society's Chelsea Flower Show is held. One little caveat I would say is that it has been a very cold spring. You need to really make sure if you're going to do the Chelsea Chop that your plants are between 30 and 50 centimetres tall, the new growth coming up from the ground, before you do it. And if that means doing it a little bit later in the year this year because your plants are a bit behind do hang on and it might be a little bit more June than May. So the main reason for administering the Chelsea Chop which on first impression can seem like an odd thing to do is to delay the flowering of your perennial plants by three to six weeks and what that does is extend their flowering season out into the middle or end of summer which can be very useful if your garden tends to be all full of flowers in June and July and then looking quite barren later in the year when it's hotter and drier. It's very effective if you have herbaceous borders or you just want to sustain the colour even if for example you're going on holiday earlier in the summer and you'd rather see your flowers flowering not have them going on while you're away it's a good way of managing that. The other benefit which is particularly useful for gardeners like me who garden in shade or in an exposed location is that plants that have been given the Chelsea Chop grow less tall and much stronger and bushier So they require a lot less support and they're a lot less likely to fall over. It also encourages some plants to produce more plentiful flowers, albeit smaller ones. So what you won't get is the great big blooms that form on the leading shoots, but you'll get a profusion of smaller blossoms, which can be just as lovely to look at. So all you need to do the Chelsea Chop is take a really sharp pair of shears or secateurs to each clump of perennials that you want to delay and cut about 30 to 50% of the height away. So about halfway down is fine. No finesse required. You don't need to worry about snipping every stem individually unless you're particularly neat and tidy. They will grow away really quickly so you won't notice any half cut leaves within a week or two. The cuttings you can add to your compost heap they'll be really great for adding that green matter that we talked about last week to your compost and there's even a pair of mini shears in my range that are perfectly designed for the job. If you've got more than one clump of the same plant, let's say a phlox for example, then you could think about giving one half of your phlox plants the Chelsea Chop and leaving the other half alone. 
And by doing that, you'll get flowering that will go from very early to very late in the flowering season. You can also remove half of the flowering stems from within each clump. But the danger of doing that is that the plant channels all its energy into the stems that you haven't chopped and none into the ones that you have. And it will be very important that you remove the flowers from those stems once they've finished. Otherwise, the plant will feel that it's done its job and just start producing seeds instead. So having cut your plants back, it's a really good practice to water and feed them to replace some of that energy that they will have lost from the foliage that you've cut away. And that will encourage them to regrow and flower really beautiful. It is almost impossible to get the Chelsea chop wrong because most plants will bounce back really quickly. But do avoid doing it later than early to mid-June because the plants may not then build up the capacity to, to flower and only do it on plants that will respond well. So we will put a list in the show notes but a few plants that respond really well to the Chelsea chop are Achilles, Echinaceas, Gelardias, Heleniums, Phlox and one of the key ones is sedum, sedum telephium, which has got another name now, which is, I always forget, it's something like hygrotelephium or something ugly. But those lovely sedums that we all have in our gardens with the waxy green leaves and the big flat heads of red flowers that attract all the bees and butterflies, give a few of those to Chelsea Chop and you will have flowers right through the autumn and even into November. So I'll include all those plants in the show notes. But I think you're going to tell us that the Chelsea Chop does not have to be restricted to ornamental plants. Is that right? <laughs> of course that's right. We can't leave the edibles out of this, can we? No, you're exactly right. So with herbs, I think herbs respond brilliantly to the Chelsea Chop and chives in particular. So it's interesting that you say 30 to 50% you cut down because my chives, I always wait for them to flower, which is usually, may not be this year, the Chelsea Flower Show week. And once they're in flower, they are looking gorgeous, but I know I'm not going to get any more tender leaves from them. So I cut the whole lot off right down to the ground because those stems and the leaves get a bit woody. And within three weeks, it's like ping, they just come back and they are bright, fresh, tender, beautifully scented. And it just works brilliantly every single year for me. But you can do that too with salvias, with thyme, with all sorts of things. And actually even basil, my basil in the greenhouse, I wouldn't really call it a Chelsea chop, but I am quite harsh with the stems and I reduce them by quite a lot just to get many more leaves because at the end of the day you grow herbs for their aromatic leaves and what's the point if they just get tall and woody? So I'm quite happy to chop pretty much anything actually. <laughs> Julia's plants need to watch out if they see a pair of shears approaching. I think it is worth mentioning that if you do have any woody herb plants like lavenders or rosemary then be careful about cutting back into old wood that has no foliage on it because some of those plants are prone to not regrowing from that older wood. Do it with your nice fresh vibrant green things. I think 
marjoram and oregano are also very good for that aren't they and yeah often that's need good. a tidy that's a good, yeah and actually that's a good tip with the sort of the really soft tender new shoots they're quite obvious when you see them but the other thing is you could actually take some cutting so of the bits you've chopped off you can remove the lower leaves pop them into some hormone rooting powder and pop them up and put them somewhere shady in the garden and you'll be doubling your stock of plants as well so kill two birds with one stone as they say brilliant yes and i definitely will be doing that this year because i think you can never have enough herbs in your garden i agree so every episode i choose my pick of the bunch while julia shares her top of the crops and at this time of year we're both really spoiled for choice so what are you going to tempt us with this week julia i am going back to basics because i think this is quite a basic vegetable but often overlooked i'm going to talk about the humble radish radishes are popular and really easy to grow as a vegetable and they can be eaten cooked or raw and they make a tasty addition to salads sandwiches other dishes and they can be grown inside and outside so they're a great option for all gardeners particularly those who maybe don't have access to outdoor space as well they are a cool weather vegetable so they're great for growing here in the uk i find them best to grow in the spring and all the autumn and i also find that i can grow them all year round using my greenhouse for the colder months. So it's a sort of all year round veg for me. They're very easy to grow. The seeds, you sow them directly if planting outside in half inch deep drills and approximately, if you can manage this, about an inch apart. But don't worry if you can't because you can thin them out later. Water at the time of sowing. But if they, if you're sowing them outside, they can pretty much fend for themselves unless we are under drought conditions, in which case you would have to just be on top of the watering for the first couple of weeks. But they're pretty hardy radishes. They can pretty much grow if they're ignored. Once the seeds have germinated, try to thin the seedlings to leave two to three inches apart. They are super fast growing and once they're the size of about a marble, they can start to be harvested. Try not to let them get too big because they have a tendency to become rather woody and not so palatable. It is quite easy to leave some by mistake, There's particularly in the summer months. and You can sleep them, but when you cut into them, you can actually, as you cut, feel it's quite woody centre. If you prefer to grow indoors, you sow the seeds in pretty much the same way as I've just explained, but your container needs to be at least six inches deep with drainage holes. So fill the container with well-drained potting mix and place in a sunny light position somewhere in a kitchen or living room or hall or something like that. You'll need to be on top of the watering because anything grown inside, the soil dries out really quickly. So I would probably say daily watering. And again, thin the seedlings when they have germinated and allow maybe a couple of inches between each seedling if they're grown in a pot. You can usually grow a few more crammed in a pot. And then in as little as three to four weeks, the radishes are ready to be harvested. Pull them by their leaves, giving a little wiggle, or use a small tool, something like a widger, to prise them out. And it's as simple as that. So I have them going on window ledges outside. I've always got a steady supply. My favourite varieties to grow at the moment, or my top favourite one, is French breakfast, which is quite a long fat radish it's probably about the length of my baby finger so don't just think small globes for radishes 
It's really tasty. It's a bright pink colour, fading almost like a kind of ombre back down to white. Scarlet Globe is a nice red round one that's got lovely white flesh and a tasty tang. Purple Plum, that's another good one. So that as it is, it's a purple shape one. It's got a good flavour. And also you can buy now mixed colours. So you can buy a pack which has got a yellow, purple, red and orange radish in. So a little bit like the Rainbow Beets you can get, you can do the same mm. with radishes. And I absolutely love them. I think you can hardly go wrong with them actually, Dan. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And I, of course, I knew you were going to talk about radishes, but it really made me think and ponder why they're not more popular and I wonder whether the whole sort of growing them when you're at school thing slightly tarnishes their desirability because when you grow a radish yourself the sort of crispness of it is off the scale isn't it when you just pull it up from the ground and eat it and they really are quite wonderful little vegetables you see them crop up on MasterChef every so often but they're really not as mainstream as they could be. What Have you got any thoughts on why they're not a more popular vegetable? Yeah, I don't know, because I actually see them now on my supermarket suite, bags of them, and they're not expensive. It's like 50p for quite a lot in a bag. I don't know, because they do feature on all the cooking shows, don't they? And, and I have to say, they pack a punch with flavour. They're brilliant, but maybe you're right. Maybe school lunches and growing things have put people off. Possibly a bit like overcooked large broad beans, maybe. Puts a lot of people off. <laughs> yes, that, perhaps a little bit of an acquired taste, but I really do think that they are they're very worth growing and so easy. As you say, you can't really go wrong. You mentioned that they're a cool weather crop. Can you just explain a little bit what that means? And can I still sow them into the summer months? Yes, you can. I mean, as I said, I sow all year, but basically it means that they just grow a little bit slower in the cooler months. They're better at a temperature around 50 degrees. And it just means that if you grow them in the summer, which obviously you can and I do, they have a tendency to bolt when it's hot. So they could actually be almost over before they've developed a nice fat root that's worth using. By all means, collect the seed. I can't help myself, I just grow them all the time. But that you just get a better production either side of the hot summer months. Yeah, I think that's a really good tip. And while we're talking about heat, I have always eaten my radishes cold in salads and things like that. But you mentioned that you could cook with them. So I wondered if you had any wise words about cooking with radishes. Funnily enough, we have cooked radishes on our menu tonight. <laughs> Lucky Mr P is getting a chicken dish tonight with braised lettuce and cooked radishes. Yeah, they're really good because they stay firm. So there's a really brilliant recipe in Eat Green by Melissa Helmsley. It's my new favourite cookbook. And there's a lovely dish. It's really tasty. It's really easy to use. And radishes cook in the sort of the broth sauce for about half an hour. And they are they look good because the dish is actually very colourful because radishes don't lose their colour on impact with hot cooking. And it's delicious. So, yeah, we're having them tonight. Mm, that sounds lovely. It's going to have a nice bit of crunch to it, I think. Sounds delicious. Yes. So, Dan, so that's me and my humble radish. Our gardens are brimming over with fronds, flowers and foliage. 
possibly more foliage than flowers at the moment, but how are you possibly going to choose one of them to talk about? Please do reveal all. There's an embarrassment of riches in our gardens between now and the end of the month, which is one of the reasons why the Chelsea Flower Show is when it is. So choosing a plant or a flowering plant right now is quite hard. And I have a general rule with everything that we do on this podcast that I must always talk about things that I have first-hand knowledge of and not just spout what I've read in books. But I'm going to slightly bend my rule today because I want to sing the praises of a shrub that I love but have no way of growing myself, and that's the deciduous azalea. Like chrysanthemums, deciduous azaleas are one of those plants that was enormously popular from the 1920s through to the 1970s and then completely fell out of favour. I think probably because the colour is quite garish, they produce very bright, vibrant flowers, but also because that was the point at which suburban gardens really started to shrink down. There was lots of development and gardens became smaller and possibly the soil actually became much less good in new build gardens. And I think they just fell out of favour because they're a shrub that you need to grow where there's some space, but also they do their bit at the beginning of the year and the end of the year and in between they look pretty plain. Deciduous azaleas are quite different from their better-known evergreen azalea cousins. They're a flowering shrub, but they do lose their leaves in the autumn, and with that, they turn pretty spectacular shades as well. So you don't just get the bright flowers in spring, you get the amazing foliage in the autumn. And they look great grown en masse to achieve a sort of woodland edge effect because that's the kind of environment that they enjoy. The big limitation to growing azaleas and the reason I don't have any in my garden is that they need a combination of soil conditions that is actually quite rare, especially in my part of the country. It's a little bit more common in the western parts of the country but they need all those magical conditions that always make you wring your hands when you read the catalogue. They need that magical, moist, but well-drained soil that so few of us have. But it also needs to be quite deep and quite airy. So they want that sort of woodsy, humus-rich soil that you would find at a woodland edge, but not often in a garden. And of course it must be acid and that is the main reason that I can't grow them at all because here in Broadstairs it is chalk which is highly alkaline and that as I'll explain in a minute causes all sorts of problems for that particular plant. And I think that is one of the reasons why we tend to find deciduous azaleas in the gardens of big houses, in botanical gardens, because there's space there and they often can create the right conditions for them. They don't particularly like clay, which I suspect we're going to talk about a bit in a minute, because I think yours are growing on some clay, but, yeah. but they, because they like a lot of oxygen around their roots. And in particularly in the south of England, because they are cool shade plants, they do appreciate a little bit of dappled shade. The ones that really broke the mould about 200 years ago are the Ghent azalea hybrids, because prior to that, azaleas were considered to be 
quite tender and were probably grown in conservatories and greenhouses because of that. Like many plants, camellias also were grown in that way back in the day because they weren't fully hardy, winters were also colder. But with all the hybridisation that's been done over the years, they're now much hardier, that you've got hybrids with huge blooms, often heavily perfumed, and some really beautiful species azaleas as well that are deciduous in the same way. Yes, so they're great. They plant them en masse, have them as a specimen plant, which I know you do in your garden, and they look magnificent. And they're also, I think, worth saying, despite the fact I mentioned that they've disappeared as gardens shrunk, they don't grow particularly fast. So they'll get to about six foot or so after 10 years, but you can hack them back. They're quite accommodating when it comes to being pruned, and they will keep their shape quite nicely if you manage them and they won't outgrow the space you've got for them. There are lots of really great gardens where you can see them blooming now. They will be blooming from around now until early June. So if you're anywhere near the Hillier Garden, Wisley, Exbury, Board Hill, where of course I was a couple of weekends ago, and further north at Glendoyck in Perthshire, you will see spectacular displays of these azaleas. I have so many favourites and I'm not going to mention them all now. They will be in the show notes, but of course you can bet your bottom dollar they've all got bright, fiery coloured flowers and amazing perfume. (laughs) You can grow deciduous azaleas in pots, although I just don't know why you would want to. I think they're a plant that looks best in the garden in dapple shade, surrounded by bluebells, just as I found them in your garden. Oh, you came at the right time, Dan, didn't you? I did. (laughs) (laughs) So that's fascinating. But you didn't mention that they grow really well in Cornwall and that's where your heart is. But they do grow particularly well down there, don't they, with the right conditions? They do. Lovely acid soil, frequent rainfall. And yes, it's just perfect for them. And a very mild temperate climate. So not so many extremes of temperature in Cornwall, which suits them right down to the ground. Yeah, okay. The one that you mentioned that I have is called Azalea luteum, which is a yellow azalea. It's not too bright, but it's a beautiful one. I don't really like yellow in the garden, but it's stunning. But it has the most beautiful scent. And at night, walking out, got the bluebell scent rising and you've got the azalea coming into flower. It's really lovely. But I have a question for you, Dan. So what is the difference, please? Because I think I'm not sure I know the answer. I know lots of people feel the same. What's the difference between a rhododendron and an azalea? That is a good question because they used to be two separate genera. So they used to be classed differently, but now they are all considered to be rhododendrons. Botanists love to tinker with their taxonomy, so proper botanists could explain to you why. But there are still some quite major differences between an azalea and a rhododendron in terms of appearance. So azaleas tend to have quite thin leaves with a sort of hairy coating, whereas rhododendrons have quite thick leathery leaves. Azaleas have five or six stamens in each flower, while rhododendrons will typically have 10 or more. So that's another way to tell the difference between an azalea and a rhododendron. 
And the clusters of flowers on a rhododendron tend to be much larger and bulkier than an azalea, which is generally more delicate and fairy-like, I think. And I think most people would consider that azaleas are like a small rhododendron. Azaleas also have a much more sort of shrubby, branched habit, a finer habit than a rhododendron, which some of which can be almost tree size. And I have been lucky enough to see many rhododendrons growing in the wild in the Himalayas and Bhutan and there is a big difference between those and what we would consider an azalea but to all intents and purposes they are part of the same group and I'd just say an azalea is a slightly smaller rhododendron by and large. <laughs> okay well that's good that explains it thank you and I was amazed when we first moved here that my my azaleas were thriving because I wouldn't say that we had acidic soil but they just seem to love it here camellias too in fact now you've mentioned it I can now identify that I have a rhododendron at the front as well but so (laughs) how is that a thing because they love acid soil but I'm on heavy clay and I wouldn't like to say how good the clay is further down that part of the garden I don't know and of course this is the joy of gardening that there are always slight mysteries around things like this but your soil will be acid because if it wasn't your azaleas and rhododendrons would not be happy and it would be very obvious that they're not. It may be that you're at the top of a hill with the most spectacular view I might add and that your drainage is quite good in those areas which is helping the 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 azaleas and rhododendrons to get away with it but also you are cultivating your garden so you will be aerating around the root balls but the ph of your soil must be somewhere between four and six which is on the acid side of neutral for azaleas and rhododendrons to flourish in soil like mine it, it will be very obvious very quickly that they are not happy because the presence of that alkalinity meddles with the rhododendron or azalea's metabolism and it stops it from being able to take up certain nutrients that it needs. And also it encourages the plant to take up too much calcium and that stops photosynthesis and makes the leaves go yellow. You can do all sorts of things to try and get round it. If you're like me and have a chalky soil, is it worth it? I don't think so. Grow what you can grow easily. Let the lucky people like you and these great gardens grow them to perfection and grow something else because tinkering with soil is very hard to do unless you're going to work hard at it and almost isolate the plant from its surroundings. Grow it in a pot if you must, but I would just say leave well alone. But they are splendid. And yes, I if you can grow them, I would because they are very rewarding and beautiful plants. Yeah. Oh, that's great, Dan. Thank you. I mean, I didn't particularly enjoy them before we moved in and I had some here and now I do. I really appreciate them and all the different colours that they that you can get. They are stunning. So thank you. So we round off every episode with a rundown of the jobs that you can be doing in your garden over the next fortnight. And this time it's Dan's turn to keep us on the straight and narrow with what we've got to do. So Dan, over to you. So number one, keep earthing up your potatoes. It's not impossible that we might get a frost in the next few weeks and earthing them up is just going to protect the new shoots and hopefully get you a bigger crop. Do the Chelsea chop, as we discussed, just making sure that you've got that 30 to 50 centimetres of growth before you take the shears to your plant. 
Discard tulips that have been growing in pots. They're very unlikely to reflower. If you must, transfer them to a cutting garden or a remote bit of your garden and keep your fingers crossed that you might get some blooms the following year. Harden off your dahlias and pinch out the side shoots on your tomatoes to make sure that they have a nice clear stem. The bushy and trailing ones don't need this, but the cordon ones do. You can sow runner beans outside now, fennel and all the autumn and winter picking brassicas. Container grown plants can be planted all the way through May. Roses, perennials and climbers, just make sure you water them well if you get a dry spell. Move all your foliage house plants away from direct sunlight now to avoid scorching. There is a huge difference in day length and sun intensity at this time of year and I have really noticed how much some of my house plants are bleaching already. So just move them back a little bit and it will make a huge difference. You can take cuttings of woody herbs like rosemary, lavender, mint, sage, oregano and thyme as we discussed earlier and make sure you open your greenhouse doors and windows. On very warm days, it also pays to damp down your paths, which is just the practice of watering your paths, and it creates a lovely bit of humidity that your plants are really gonna appreciate. Start feeding your containers now, especially if the plants are in them permanently, because it will very quickly be depleted of nutrients as plants start growing. The average potting compost only has enough nutrients in it to last six to eight weeks. So very quickly you need to supplement that with some plant food. And May is the last time to sow grass seed or lay new turf. So get on with it if you want that perfect sward. In the meantime, the rest of us are probably observing no mow May and letting all of our lawns flourish and become flower-filled meadows. So before we go, we'd like to share what we're going to be up to between now and the next episode. Julia, over to you. I am going to be at Nomad Books in Fulham on 13th of May. I'm doing a workshop and book signing at two o'clock in the afternoon. They've got quite a large site on the Fulham Road and I'm very excited about that. They've got lots of children registered already to come. You have to be five plus in years and we're going to be sewing some things that we have already done in the Little Growers Cookbook and chatting about all things green for little people to start off on their gardening journey. So that's great. Then, of course, if you haven't paid attention, I am helping Alatex put together their stand for the Chelsea Flower Show, which is so exciting. And next week, it's going to be all systems go and I will be on site starting to pull everything together. Alatex are already putting the greenhouses up now they've had some torrential rain this weekend it's been flooding but they are on it and by the time I get there next week it'll be a case of planting styling moving pulling together and I'm very excited so I've got to be packing my hard hat my steel cap boots and my high vis jacket the rest of the week it'll be very long days for everyone but we all pull together and it is the most wonderful experience 
And talking of Alatex, before the Chelsea Flower Show, they are going to be at the Royal Horticultural Melbourne Spring Festival, the 11th to 14th of May, showcasing their Mottisfont greenhouse from the National Trust range. And they'll be on hand with advice about installing a greenhouse. And of course, for the Chelsea Flower Show, they are in their usual position, if you've noticed them before, which is Main Avenue, 336. Alatex have a great position opposite the show gardens so do come and see them and I'll be there press day and then the day after. There are two spectacular greenhouses on display and um, we're showcasing the good life in a sustainable way. I can't wait to see them. I'm very excited. I'm very excited to see what you've been up to at Chelsea and I'm glad you're doing all the hard work (laughs) and I can just stand back and have a look. Dan what are you up to? I'm going to be at Solthrop House in Rawton near Swindon this Sunday, May the 14th, for a rare plant fair. It's the first time it's been held in this venue and it is a stunning Georgian house owned by the designer Sophie Conran. And I am just really looking forward to being somewhere a little bit different and hopefully meeting some new customers. If you bring me a cup of tea, I will be your best friend for life because I'm generally standing (laughs) at these things on my own and I can't escape. Yeah, I'll put my order in. Quite strong, no sugar, just a dash of milk. That would be lovely. (laughs) And then the following weekend, just before Chelsea Fire Show, while Judy is beavering away in the Alatex greenhouse, I will be at the American Museum and Gardens in Bath, which is the city of my birth. And there will be a fantastic plant fair. They're very well established. The gardens of the museum are designed by some of my favourite designers. They're really worth seeing. And it is just a marvellous location. Everywhere in Bath is beautiful. Of course, I would say that. But it is a really special location and very family friendly. So do come along to that plant fair because you might even get to meet my dad who is threatening to to help with that so you'll get two Coopers for the price of one there (laughs) and then of course I will be off to Chelsea I'm going to have a day to myself all being well on the Tuesday and then on the Wednesday I will be there with some very special friends including my friend from Australia that I spoke about earlier and we'll just generally be enjoying the day, not taking things too seriously, although I will be sharpening my elbows so I get the best view of the show gardens. And we're actually going to even try and do a special recording from the Chelsea Flower Show, so watch this space. Yes, with our combined technological ability. I don't know how that's going to turn out, but we're going to try and do it. We're professional podcasters now. We will make it work. Well, one of us is. (laughs) (laughs) so that's all for this episode it just remains for me to say goodbye from me and goodbye from me you've been listening to the two good gardeners podcast with dan cooper and julia parker sponsored by alatex home of the modern victorian greenhouse designed in the uk for over 70 years and built worldwide thank you so much for listening If you've enjoyed today's episode, then why not click follow on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss out. Leaving a rating or writing a review will help us to reach other gardening enthusiasts like you. We'll return here with a freshly prepared smorgasbord of delights in a fortnight. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at dancoopergarden.com, at parkers underscore patch, and at Two Good Gardeners, or visit our websites. You'll find the addresses in the show notes. 
If you've got questions for either of us, you can email them to hello at dancoopergarden.com. So until the next time, happy gardening! <laughs>